Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Welcome back to the podcast. This is, I think, your third time being on the podcast. Uh, second time. Second actually. time? I could have sworn it was three. Okay, second time. Welcome back with your mm-hmm. uh, the second your second alchemy book. So maybe remind people who you are and uh, let them know about your new book. Yeah, uh, my name is Marlena Seven Bremner, and um, I was on your show last fall to talk about my first book, um, Hermetic Philosophy and Creative Alchemy. And now we're here to talk about the new book, which just came out in June. Um, it's called The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, uh, Imagination, Creativity, and the Great Work. And it's sort of, it goes together with the first book, but it goes much deeper into the alchemical side of things. The first book uh, talks about hermeticism and the roots of hermeticism in ancient Egypt and sort of the history and its development over the centuries, and then gives a um, theoretical basis for alchemy and how that relates to hermeticism. And the second book goes more into the alchemical art and how to work with it uh, from a creative perspective and specifically going through the uh, traditional four stages of the great work or magnum opus and how that relates to different parts of the creative process. Awesome. So I think last time you were on, we talked about alchemy in general, Um, Mm -hmm. but this sounds this sounds great. So so let's just start off with this. So what are the four stages uh, as related to the, the creative process? Uh, well, in a nutshell, um, they're related to four color changes that the alchemists observed within their vessels, and they were working with usually mineral materials, sometimes plants. But these four color stages went from black to white to yellow to red, and these were named the Nicredo, Albedo, Citrinity. Citrinitas and uh, Rubedo. And the beginning of all of this is in the blackness of the Nigredo, which is sort of like the blackness at the beginning of creation, the darkness at the beginning of creation, from which all things emerge. And they related it to processes of putrefaction. And from that putrefaction, generation um, ensued. And so the rest of the opus, the other stages, kind of follow from that initial death experience. And in the creative process, we can think of that as the times when we're feeling rather blocked or maybe even depressed or not inspired, not creatively active. And 
usually we tend to see that as a deficiency or like there's something wrong with us. And in the alchemical perspective, this is actually the beginning of the process because everything emerges from that death state. And so if we look at that creatively, we can kind of turn things on their head, you know, and um, take these dark periods of our life and these phases when we feel very um, creatively blocked and see them as the beginning of a process. And so from there, once we can embrace that, it begins to transform. And many people, I think, have had that experience when you're going through some dark night of the soul and you suddenly have some glimmer of hope. Something happens where you see the light and you think, oh, okay, this isn't going to last forever. And that's when you're beginning to transition into that next stage of the opus, which is the albedo or the whitening. And this can be related to a lunar process. Um, So kind of getting in touch with the inner world where we begin to see things more symbolically and find the deeper hidden meanings within things that we're experiencing. And it can be a deeply inspiring time as well. So we're kind of flooded with inspiration um, or dissolving into this spiritual experience. And from that, our ideas are beginning to maybe formulate in the spiritual realm. And um, as we process things that we face during that first phase of the Negredo, that dark phase, um, these things are kind of being purified and restructured and reorganized. So on a spiritual level, uh, the second phase of the opus has to do with purification of the inner world. So we might have these certain mental limitations and blockages that have been keeping us from really accessing our creativity and our authenticity as a creator. And during this phase, we're kind of breaking those things down, um, bringing them to a higher level of understanding, and then reintegrating them. And um, from here, this that second stage is kind of a lunar process. So the third stage moves into a more solar process. And um, where the lunar is more feminine or receptive, the solar is more active and conscious. And this is the third stage of the opus called the Citrinitas. And it has to do with the yellowing or a sort of um, solarization or tinging, um, tinging the white stone that we received in the second stage with the yellow or gold color of the sun. And so it's an activating process, but also I relate it to processes of maturation or gestation where uh, creatively we might have begun to coalesce our ideas into some sort of project. And during this phase, the project is underway, but maybe um, going through different points where we have to let things gestate and meditate and um, develop over a long period of time. So it's a transitionary stage. And spiritually, it's one where we are beginning to integrate things that we learned from our unconscious selves and bring them to a more conscious level. Um, I know I said this was going to be a nutshell, but I'm kind of giving you the whole the whole spiel. And um, you can ask as many questions as you want, because I know I'm okay. kind of glazing over a lot right now. Um, but from here, it's a transition into the red stage of the opus, the final stage called the rubedo. And spiritually, this would be like the um, a greater awareness that emerges from the whole process, kind of the completion of the process. And creatively, it might be the completion of a work of art or a work of creation. And um, in the alchemical sense, it's the 
the point in the process where the conscious and the unconscious or the masculine and feminine, the active and the receptive uh, merge together into a unified essence. And from this um, comes the perfection of the philosopher's stone. And so that's sort of the whole goal of the alchemical opus is the perfection of this philosopher's stone. And the philosopher's stone is actually present through the whole process. It's there in the very beginning, in the first matter that opens up in that negredo phase of the beginning, but it's in a sort of raw state. And our task through this work is to take that raw stone and uh, submit it to all these different processes of um, dissolution and coagulation, and then bring it to its final perfection in the rubedo. And from here, that philosopher's stone becomes like a kernel of spiritual awareness, something that we've um, gained through this whole process that we then hold on to. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're all of a sudden enlightened through the process. Um, maybe we've just reached a certain stage of awareness. And the solidity of the philosopher's stone that's talked about in alchemical texts, the indestructibility of it, um, becomes something that is just a part of us. And then we build on that from there and we keep going through these alchemical stages to further refine it and perfect it and develop it. Is this process something that is a model of things, processes that you think are already occurring that people are unconscious of? Or is it more like an intentional thing that people need to uh, actively engage with in order to um, use? Well, I think it does happen unconsciously. And I think the more awareness that we bring to it, the more that we can get out of it and the more that we can learn from it. But I think people are going through these phases just kind of naturally, you know, and I love that they also mirror the phases of the seasons as well. You know, the death of winter, rebirth of spring and sort of opening of spring and the light of spring and then the the heat and the warmth and the maturation of summer and then the um completion and the harvest of fall it kind of it's a very nice um parallel can you give maybe an example of somebody undergoing this process and what it looked like in real world terms or stories from your own life of going through it yeah well i guess the easiest thing would be a story from my own life um and i've talked about this before we might have talked about it a little bit the first time it's okay um, but when I was in my 20s, um, I was studying polarity therapy, and it's a pretty intensive process of working with the body, studying anatomy, working on clients, doing a lot of self-work. And I ended up kind of going into a deep depression. And in the process of trying to figure out how to heal from it and what I needed to learn, I was walking around with this mantra of, I need to be shattered. I need to be broken open because I just didn't know how to access it otherwise. And all of the, um, the healing work that I was doing didn't seem to quite be getting to it. And so I, uh, I ended up taking DMT, which, um, is the only time that I've ever taken DMT. And I, you know, I had a sort of naive preconception of, um, the cosmos and of the beneficence of the creator and all is good, all is light kind of thing, you know? And when I had this experience, it completely turned everything on its head because 
what I perceived in that experience was um, what I've later been able to equate to that prima materia, the first matter, and a state of complete um, ego dissolution on the one hand, but then just this awareness of what was going on um, that persisted throughout. And it felt like an eternity of just pure, um, undifferentiated chaos. And it was terrifying. And when I came out of it, I just couldn't shake the feeling that it left me with and the realization that um, maybe the universe isn't all light, you know, and maybe there's this other side to it. Was it, not and, to interrupt, but was it dark or just chaotic? Um, well, it wasn't dark so much as it was just cold. Like, I didn't feel any beneficence there. Mm. Um, yeah, it just felt sort of indifferent. And you, you were concerned that this was the nature of the universe? <laughs> well, I think at first I was. And it was just sort of a shock, you know, because I had expected um, that I would have some sort of, you know, contact with a loving being that would help me find my way and help me figure out how to heal from this situation I was in, this depression. But instead, I got this very real experience of being torn apart. Um, and it left me feeling very shattered and even worse off than before. So I definitely got what I was asking for. I just didn't know that I had been asking for that specifically. Hmm. And what happened was I, at the time, um, someone had given me a book by Carl Jung about psychology and alchemy. And so I was beginning to kind of learn about alchemy. And I had learned a little bit from um, my studies with polarity therapy and had been introduced to hermetic ideals and concepts. And uh, so things were starting to come together. But as I was reading Jung and kind of reflecting on the Negredo and then reading about the Prima Materia and considering my experience, um, I began to see it as a real opportunity to begin connecting with something deep within myself that wanted to be explored. So this was when I was first teaching myself how to oil paint. And um, I just began to see how I could portray things that might be difficult to express in words through images that were going on within me at a deep level, um, allow them to come out sort of spontaneously without a filter, just as a very cathartic process of like, okay, this is what I'm feeling. It's pretty dark, but I'm just going to get it out and see what it has to teach me, you know? And so as I would paint, things would come out and they would be maybe a little bit disturbing or like unsettling or just strange. And yet once I was able to see them outside of myself, it sort of began to transform what was going on inside of me. So I began to see this relationship between the inner and the outer unfolding in a really potent way. And, and over time, um, I was able to start really integrating things. Um, and at a deeper level, what that experience uh, triggered was a lot of unprocessed trauma. And so that sort of superficial spiritual perspective that I had been holding was also one that didn't allow me to look at the darkness within myself. It didn't allow me to look at my own shadow material. Um, so this was all the stuff that was coming up after that. And that's all very quintessential to that Negredo experience. It's like working with the darkness within the self, the things we don't like about ourselves, the things we tend to uh, deny and reject and end up projecting outward onto other people and situations 
um, because it's easier to deal with if it's outside of ourselves, if it's not us, you know? So the Negredo is all about kind of reclaiming those shadow aspects and acknowledging them as coming from within the self and embracing them with love, you know, instead of rejecting them because they all have something um, that they need and also something that they want to give to us. So if we can work with that, if we can begin to um, form a relationship with them, then they become allies and they become something that actually helps us on our path rather than hindering us. So that was um, a period of like three to five years that I kind of worked through that. It was really intense. And when I started to come out of it, I did really enter a phase that was very inspired and very liminal and very watery. You know, it just felt like the boundaries between myself and the world were just dissolving um, constantly and everything took on a symbolic level of meaning and dreams became really potent. And I was working with surrealist techniques of automatism. So really allowing that unconscious material to just flow out unfiltered. And um, what, are, what are those techniques for those who don't know, like myself, who don't know what they are? Is that like Dolly's um, yeah. paranoid critical? Well, that's, yeah, that's definitely one of them. Um, but I think there are maybe simpler techniques like automatic drawing or automatic painting, um, which, you know, Dolly's technique is kind of like trying to portray multiple images within one image that you can perceive all at the same time. Whereas automatic drawing is really just letting yourself scribble on the page or um, paint without any sort of agenda and really putting that rational, critical, linear thinking mind to the side, going into a bit of a trance state and allowing just the hand to move freely. So that um, whatever is actually latent within the self is just naturally coming out without any um, attempt to structure it. And it may just be scribbles. You may start to see forms. You might be able to tease out some forms when you give it some attention. Um, but it's a really cathartic way to start accessing the unconscious. And, and one of the ways that I work with it when I'm painting um, Sometimes I'll do the automatic process just with the brush straight on the canvas. And that's how I started with that technique. But now what I like to do is um, before I start a painting, if I don't know what I'm going to paint and I want it to be an automatic painting, I'll lay down a really thick layer of paint, usually an earth tone or something that'll work well as an underpainting or undercoat in prematura and um, paint it on real thick and then take a rag and very vigorously in a really sort of automatic state, um, rub away the paint. But sometimes I'll use my left hand to make it even more um, random, you know, but rub away the paint in a way that's just completely um, free, you know, free of intention. And it'll leave a whole canvas full of patterns. And that becomes like the prima materia. It becomes like a, a scrying surface that, I can gaze into and usually I'll spend a number of hours or over several days, I'll spend time just gazing into this prima materia on my canvas to see what, what emerges, what I see. And that's often how I'll begin a painting. Hmm. Do you feel that that's like a, a dialogue with the chaos of the universe? You're trying to pull something out. <laughs> yeah. The chaos of the universe, the chaos within myself. Yeah. Yeah. 
Talk more about that period of working with um, dark, uh, well, specifically trauma. I mean, I think that that period is really where the rubber hits the road, I think, with spirituality, because every, any, anyone can kind of start doing this type of stuff and get into love and light and messages from the universe or what, whatever. But, you know, after a while, you, at least in my experience, come up against your own your own darkness and your own failings. And, and ideally that's what you, that's what you want. I mean, it's a self therapeutic process. I think magic in general, you, you want to confront that stuff. So you stop doing it. Um, <laughs> or you deal with stuff that you weren't dealing with. And I think the golden dawn, uh, we, we may end up retreading stuff from the last podcast cause I don't remember what's in it, but that's okay. Um, you know, the golden dawn diagram of, there's before and after the garden fall of the garden of Eden where the red dragon swarms the, the tree of life regard Israel regardy talks about that. And he says, you know, like anyone who begins magic is going to, uh, you know, he used male pronouns. He's writing in the fifties, but he said, you know, any, anyone who begins the great work is going to begin with all these incredible experiences, but so sooner or later is going to look in the mirror and see the worst scoundrel on planet earth. And I can definitely <laughs> vouch for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, by the way, that yeah. doesn't end either. Um, but, uh, but talk about that process because I think that trauma is something that people are much more aware of now than they used to be. Spiritual bypassing is something that people are much more aware of now, now that the phrase got coined than they were, than they were before. Um, and yet spirituality is more popular than ever. So there's tons and tons of people engaging probably at the surface level and not going past their comfort zone, which is also fine. But for me, that self confrontation is kind of the main event and it's hard and it's painful and it, 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 it's not simple and it's not clean and it keeps going. So maybe, maybe talk about that <laughs> and tips and tricks. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, yeah, I, I was very guilty of that spiritual bypassing when I was younger because, you know, I became very spiritual at a young age. I think I was 14 when I started using the tarot cards and 16, I was recording all my dreams and reading, um, spiritual texts and getting into Buddhism and then later shamanism. And I had all sorts of wonderful experiences, you know, contacts with spirits and out-of-body experiences and visions. And um, I thought that's what it was all about. You know, it's like getting out of the body, um, working with those upper chakras. And I didn't really think much about what was going on inside of the body. I didn't think about my past or my origins very much. Uh, so when I had that experience, all of that kind of came flooding to the surface. And um, I realized just how, I don't know how blocked I was. Um, I had so much shame and self-hatred and insecurity, um, jealousy, and just all of these really nasty kinds of things going on inside of me that I didn't really want to face. I didn't want to admit to because I had seen myself in this other, like really kind of, um, spiritual light, you know? Um, and so these things felt very dark and shameful to me. Um, but as I began to process them and sort of understand the origins of them, kind of, you know, looking at my childhood and reflecting on the way I was brought up and all of that and healing from that, um, these energies that had been draining me, that had been kind of holding me down, pulling me down, began to become 
a source of vital creativity. And I realized that all of these things were just kind of um, expressions of fears of just being myself, just being authentic and being who I'm supposed to be. Um, so the more I could acknowledge them, the more that they became these sort of helpful energies that were actually like uh, wanting to express themselves creatively through me. I don't know if that makes sense or if it, I'm it definitely makes sense. Uh, I was listening very acutely. Um, but maybe can that be encapsulated in a soundbite for people who don't know alchemical language? And what I mean by that is the general nature of the process itself. So an example would be what I was thinking when you were saying that is, you know, the part my ears really went up when you said, um, the, this processing this darkness became a source of creative inspiration for you all of a sudden. And I thought, oh, okay, so that's that that actually that makes a lot of sense. That's kind of like that was an aha moment for me. And I thought, you know, writers are told, write what you know. And very, very seldom do. Uh, but you know, you know, every every writer has probably decades of life experience and trauma and misery and all kinds of great stuff to draw on which is, I think, similar to what you're saying. But in straightforward, concrete, practical terms, how did that then, how did you draw on that for inspiration on a day-to-day -day basis? And then how did you put that into your work? Hmm. Well, early on, I would actually just paint, try to paint what I was feeling. And so there would be images that were pretty dark you know, because I was feeling kind of a little bit dead inside some of the times. And so those were the things that tended to come out. And I don't show a lot of that work now. Um, I don't even have a lot of that work anymore. Um, it was really a sort of cathartic process of just allowing those things to be okay by giving them form in a, in a way that wasn't harming myself or others, you know. Um, and I think that's really the essence of that creative alchemical process is the relationship between the inner world and the outer world and being able to observe transmutations that are taking place externally in some sort of form that are simultaneously occurring within the self and making that connection. There's something really magical that happens. Um, because then we begin to really understand the unity of within and without and the unity of above and below. And I think that's really the heart of alchemy is that union of the above and the below, the macrocosm and the microcosm, and how that's all happening within the body, the vessel of the body. So as an artist, as a painter, for me, the alchemical vessel is the canvas. And as a writer, it's the page. As a musician, it's the song and the emotion of that song. Um, and for someone else, you know, it could be um, their business or it could be their garden or it could be their um, family. You know, it could be any number of things. Humans are endlessly creative. And we tend to just uh, think of creativity in terms of artists that are identified as artists or that make their career as an artist. But we're all creative beings all of the time. And it's just a matter of being 
conscious of that and being intentional about that. And there's infinite ways that we can apply that creativity to our lives. And so if we look at alchemy through that lens, um, it really just needs some sort of physical domain to, to practice it. It doesn't have to be painting. It doesn't have to be writing or any form of art. It could just be something physical that you're doing. Um, the way that you cook a meal, you know? Um, but I think that's really the essence of it is seeing that connection between the outer and the inner. I have a couple thoughts on that. One is you mentioned earlier that you were in this state where, uh, that distinction had gone away and it was just you and the kind of world around you merging. Is that still something, uh, is that, did you, did you go through that or is that still something that's, uh, on your mind? <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like I went through the, the main stages of the opus in just really big ways that lasted a long time for each stage. And then since then I've touched into each one many, many times, um, over the years in different ways. And the albedo in particular at that phase in my life, um, was all consuming. And those boundaries did completely seem to dissolve to where, it was hard for me to, to really see the distinction between where I began and where I ended and everything that was occurring around me just was steeped in meaning, symbolic meaning, and everything was connected. I could see connections between my dreams and things that were happening in my daily life and things that people would say would connect with something I had just read. And it was just this constant sort of like just swimming through synchronicity to to the point where it was almost too too much overwhelming and i think you know in a real sense that can be dangerous territory for a lot of people it could be very easy to get lost in that and to get sort of um intoxicated by that lunar state you know lunacy hmm. um and to lose our footing in the consensus reality that allows us to kind of function yeah uh, socially you know and that's really important too so one of the things I try to emphasize in the book is um, that, yes, we want to be able to enter those states of fluidity, but also we need to come back and ground ourselves and integrate it. You know, integration is so important. And as much as we want to open up the imagination and allow for a sort of uh, free flow of, of thought and ideas and inspiration, we need to be able to bring that back and give it some sort of form and meaning that is helpful, not only to ourselves, but to the world around us. And outside of art, what were your most helpful techniques for doing that or techniques that didn't work? That's that I also <laughs> want to hear about that. That might be helpful. <laughs> well, outside of art, I, I think having a physical practice is really important for me. Um, and just in general, I think it's important, whether that's just meditation in some way of like stilling the mind and being in the body or actually having like a physical, you know, exercise or um, something that keeps you connected to the earth element, you know. And so I've practiced yoga since I was 19. That's been a huge part of my my process and ability to integrate things um, and to stay grounded and within the body as well. So, and I like to go spend a lot of time in nature and I feel like that's another way to just sort of, um, stay connected with what's really going on in the world around me, just observing nature and yeah, uh, the real news, not the, not the online news. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so there's those things. And I think the things that don't help that state is, um, like intoxication, like physical intoxication. Okay. I think it can exacerbate it and it might be helpful to a point if, if we're like really rigid and not able to access those realms, you know, for someone who's really rational minded, um, maybe taking ayahuasca or going on a, a psychedelic journey is going to be really helpful for them to kind of break down their mental restrictions and to see the world in a more open way. Um, but for me at the time, I think uh, those things were not super helpful. I think they tended to push it in a little too extreme of a direction. But, I think that's a really important distinction to make and to continually make, um, particularly because psychedelics have become so tr like trendy, basically. Uh, they're trendy in the business world. Um, they're trendy because of podcasts. Um, and I f worry, I don't worry, I know this to be true. I think a lot of people will take psychedelics and then just like, okay, I checked that off my bucket list. I got it. I understand spirituality. I'm done. We're all one. Okay, great. But <laughs> And then, and that can be a tricky one because there is such a close and intimate link between substances and religion period, specifically esotericism, but religion period. And there always has been, and there always will be. But for somebody who doesn't know the territory, it can be very tricky. Or even for somebody who does know the tr territory, it can be very tricky to disentangle that and say, okay, what is the actual practice? What where do I need to go with this? What do I need to get out of it? How do I buffer my system so I don't get blown out? And that I think yoga is perfect for that, uh, as is ritual magic done as a as a in, in a golden dawn sense. Mm -hmm. So I think that 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 is really critical to point out because um, I know and have been and have worked with many people who get into that state where there's suddenly no difference between them and the world, like no boundary, as Ken Wilber put it. But then they don't know what to do with that it leaves them completely vulnerable and open. And it's like, maybe, maybe, maybe would you say that that's like, they got stalled out in an alchemical stage? I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. You get stuck in a stage. Some people get stuck in the Negredo and just this sort of ongoing uh, melancholy. And I've definitely been there. Um, and some people get stuck in that stage of boundlessness and, it can be a really beautiful place to be, you know, everything's interconnected and you see everything. Um, you see yourself within everything and everything within you. And I think that was really the, the kernel that I took away from that experience was that interconnectedness, but it's kind of hard to maintain that and function in the world. Um, it becomes a little bit, um, like I said before, just overwhelming, you know, and distracting. So, for me, I think coming out of that was, um, I like that you mentioned ritual magic because that was also part of my practice at the time. Um, and also something that I think is, brings you into your body. It's meditative. Um, there's a structure to it, a routine to it that is really grounding and really positive. And um, the other thing for me was writing because that's a much more, uh, if I'm writing something, I'm writing because I want someone else to read it. You know, there's an audience that I have in mind and I want them to be able to understand what I'm writing. So I have to think clearly and I have to think linearly and rationally and to a certain degree. And um, 
convey my ideas in a way that someone else could absorb and integrate. And so that brings me back down to earth and it helps me to integrate things that might otherwise just sort of float away into the ethers, these experiences of numinousness and um, deep symbolism and um, yeah, that boundless state. If we don't find a way to kind of bring it back into form, bring it back into the world, it's going to get lost and we're going to get lost in it. That's a really good point. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, actually, because, um, um, you know, I, I also maybe a little bit later than you, I got into magic and spirituality around the age of 16. So 16, and then I was practicing around 17. So uh, a little bit later, but you know, I approached it from the perspective of wanting to be a writer and writing and having been recognized, like, you know, my teachers like my writing and all of this. So I, I had in my mind, this image that I was going to be a, like a horror writer. Right. So I was, but then I got into magic and that's not what, like <laughs> different things happened. Nine <laughs> eleven happened, all this stuff happened. So, uh, next thing I knew, uh, totally different reality. But, um, when you engage in these practices, even just yoga or even just meditation, you're going to get, uh, as anyone who's done this stuff knows, like all this incredible inspirational material, you're going to have images and thoughts and great ideas are going to come to you. And I almost think that like your mind comes up with increasingly cool stuff to just try to distract you. But that if you, <laughs> if you know how to work with that, that can actually, you can kind of tease it back and forth and it can be helpful, but mm-hmm. it can be very, you know, recently I've been much, much, much more disciplined about uh, a lot of stuff in my life after turning 40, but, um, definitely writing and I'm sitting here writing and I'm realizing like, okay, like, you know, I've been writing, I've been a writer my whole life, but in terms of fiction writing, like I've spent 20 years doing all this in all this crazy magic and getting all these incredible cosmic experiences and downloads and ideas and world changing ideas and stuff like that. And yet you're putting it, in, I'm putting it mostly in a magical record. You have that, but like, it's like, I'm thinking back almost like with the sense of dismay at like all the times that I've experienced this, I have thought something like, you know, this is going to be awesome in a book, but then like 20 years go by and you realize that this is just happening in your head. You're not putting it on the page. And so that, that I think is really disconcerting and very dangerous uh, for creative people. And I think that, um, so I'm kind of like just throwing that out there to see your thoughts on it. Um, because it really does seem to me at this point in my life that you, I've always said this, but it definitely seems like this seems like this now you can't just kind of like do magic and that's your thing. You've got to have something to manifest it into. And I think everything that you said, yes, it could be art or writing, but it could also be a business, a family, a relationship, et cetera. So you've got to have like, you know, I think a garden is a perfect metaphor, uh, and, 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 uh, it's used in an okay and all of that. Um, so I guess what I'm kind of getting at there is navigating. I both an artist and a mystic of some type are navigating in the unconscious. And those are both different modalities for navigating in the unconscious. But if you're doing both, um, that's probably, that can be pretty imbalancing, right? So how do you, how do you man, how do you navigate that? How do you navigate those waters for you personally? Did you say that can be imbalancing if you're doing both? Yes. Mm. Well, either one can be imbalancing on its own, right? And I mean, you know, like we all know the stories of burnout magicians and we definitely know all the stories of burnout writers or artists. So, you know, everyone knows that. So when you combine those two things, it's kind of like, all right, that's a Mm -hmm. lot of unstructured time in the unconscious and not the real world. 
And also one can one ideally they should be a greater than the sum of their parts, but sometimes they can compete or detract from each other, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And now that I think about it, um, when I was really deep into my ritual magic practice, that was the same time that I was also in that sort of um, state of dissolution with my creative practice. And they were sort of um, exacerbating each other and kind of pushing me further into this state of not really integrating things, but it was very exciting. Um, and there was a lot happening and I felt like I couldn't even keep up, you know, cause I, I like to journal, I write things in my journal first to kind of like get them down on paper and just quickly kind of make connections and take note of what's happening and experiences and results of, you know, magical rituals and whatnot. So I felt like I couldn't even keep up with all of the things that were happening and I would just like write frantically. And if you look at my journals from that time, it's, they're just a mess, like just total chaos. Um, so yeah, I totally think that you're right, that those things um, can be imbalancing when practiced together. They don't necessarily need to be imbalancing. Uh, which I think is, which is just, kind of what I'm getting at. How, how do we, how yeah. can they not be imbalancing? Yeah, well, I just, I think of, the magician, right. That has, um, the weapons of the five elements, you know, they've got the five elements in balance. They're all at the magician's disposal. And so if we think of the five elements, um, we've got earth, water, fire, air, and the fifth element of ether that sort of unites or holds all of the other elements together, the spirit. And if we just look at our life and we take sort of an inventory of each of these things, um, how balanced are they? So like earth element, like we were just talking about before the physical body, our relationship to the earth, our home, our physical survival, our material well-being, our physical health. These things are just really basic. If we don't have that taken care of, like the rest is not going to be functioning very well. Um, and the water element, our emotions and our relationships and our creative flow and um, creative generation and um, the things that we're taking care of in our lives, the things that we're responsible for, um, that we need to tend to, you know, mothering and fathering sort of energy. And then the fire element, our actions, our energy, our impulse, our passion, um, our vision, and um, the air element, our mental state, our thought, and the way that we communicate. So if we just look at those four elements first and how they're balanced in our life, we can um, maybe see where something is lacking. So for someone who's not very physically active, maybe they're really mentally active and they have some anxiety, you know, because they're their wheels are spinning constantly and they're like always in these upper mental realms, thinking and ideas and um Maybe they're always in conversation with people and kind of stimulated in that way, but they're never finding the time to kind of just be in the body and um, experience the body in a very just simple, physical, instinctual way. Um, so that would just be a very simple example of like, okay, so someone with a lot of mental energy maybe just needs to go for a walk mm -hmm. to give some of that energy a different outlet. Or maybe they need to work on 
creating a routine for themselves because routine is very earth element structure. Um, or someone who has too much water element, you know, and they're sort of emotionally not able to contain themselves. They're always sort of babbling on and like people have a hard time getting away Babylon. from them because they're yeah, <laughs> because they won't stop talking, you know, or like um, they tend to overwhelm people because they're like emotionally um, expressing themselves all of the time. They have no filter, you know, so for them, they might also need a little more earth element or maybe they need to um, channel some of that water element into creativity. Maybe they need to heat it up with some fire. Yeah. You know? I really so, yeah, like that. I, I think. um that's a very magical way of looking at it and just tending to the balance of things. I really like that. I, I, um, I tell my students the same thing. And, um, I think this is one of the most useful things about the Western tradition, actually, uh, the average person, I mean, I say average person, like there's any such thing there's not right. But I feel like a lot of most people have kind of two settings. They have like binary setting for how they view other people. It's like good or, or events like good or bad. It's like good, bad. It's like black and white, right? And then if you get a little bit more sophisticated, then um, maybe you get like the Tao. It's like, you know, good, bad is in good and good is in bad. But, and then you can go into Taoism and the I Ching and I love all of that stuff. And it's, and it's, but it's about the interplay of two forces or more in uh, 60, come, turns into 64 hexagrams in the I Ching. But um, when you look at the four suits of the tarot, it's like, yeah, well, if you expand people first into the five elements or even just the four elements, like that's such a useful psychological model or it's a useful model just for an individual check-in. It's like, okay, where am I on earth? Am I, how's my physical health? Um, you know, am I making enough to pay my bills? All of this stuff. Um, am I, are my feet firmly on the ground? Um, air. Like, is my mind working correctly? Am I watching, to, am I getting suckered by Fox News or whatever? You know, like, like um, you know, people get, people are insufficiently analytical or they can be too analytical to the point where it cuts them off from their experience. So you want uh, a nice balance there. You know, water, you know, how am I doing with my connection with other people, with emotions? Where's my emotional state like? Fire, how are my, what's, how's my decision making? Um, so you can kind of like check in on those things and that is a super, a much more expanded model, let alone if you then throw in the seven classical planets or, or more, like if you want to be throw in astrological signs, if you want to go hog wild, um, or Kabbalah, if you really want to go for it or Enochian tablets, if you just, if you're autistic, <laughs> but, um, I think that, uh, um, th th those can be incredibly useful models when they're approached as, Cycle, a language for describing um, what what I, I feel that magical language is most useful when it's seen as a language for a language for describing what is already right in front of your face, anyways. Instead of this idea that you're going to get into like the Marvel Cinematic Universe on the astral or something, it's like it's not like that. It's about subtle. It's about a, a language for describing subtleties in what you're already experiencing that other people are just unconscious to, uh, and that's an incredibly powerful thing. So, mm -hmm. uh, much more powerful than, than, uh, shooting lasers out of your eyes. Although I wouldn't turn that down. Um, but it, it recently I've been thinking a counterpoint to that, which is, and I put this out on Twitter, I was thinking about alchemy and I was thinking, you know, like modern people, 
moderns had this idea of alchemy that it is a psychological language following Jung. Uh, it's a, a psychological metaphor. But I was thinking, like, is that what it actually was originally? Like, I don't, I feel like it probably was not a psychological metaphor. I feel like because people were literally trying to produce gold and were often getting killed when they couldn't. So um, I'm wondering if, like, maybe even like the, oh, it's all a metaphor or it's all just about spirituality was like people covering their asses when they couldn't produce gold. I don't know, just a random thought, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Mm. Well, I think it's both. You know, I think alchemists certainly were trying to produce gold from lead, trying to transmute lead into gold. And I think there were also a lot of alchemists that were just interested in creating powerful medicines, you know, and alchemy was, especially with Paracelsus, um, a very medicinal art. But I think from the beginning, alchemy has its roots in this idea of death and resurrection and um, accessing that which is eternal and indestructible within the soul. Um, and so that was projected into matter. And this idea that something base like the metal lead could be transmuted into this divine exalted metal gold. And I think that was just a way of, um, you know, seeing that union between the inner and the outer, um, projecting that into the physical world, that spiritual process. And maybe there were some alchemists that were successful at it. I don't know. Um, I've actually talked to alchemists today that have claimed to produce the philosopher's stone and be capable of transmuting lead into gold. Are and, they, are they rich? Um, not now. Okay. Yeah. Just asking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how much I believe that, but, um, I think it's kind of missing the point. Um, and I think also to see it as solely psychological is missing the point. Hmm. How's, how so? Well, I think that's a really, really helpful lens and a really helpful way to access it. But for one, um, I don't really tend to see psychology as just limited to the mind. I see it as inherently spiritual. And because the mind is spiritual, the mind comes from the creator. You know, we're connected to that divine mind through our individual human mind. And um, because everything is interconnected. And so if we're looking at our own personal psychology, um, it is unique to us and to our experiences, uh, but it's also connected to that collective unconscious and to that field of divine mind through which we're all um, experiencing reality. So to just say that it's psychology, you know, it's just something that's happening in your mind, I think is a limiting way to see it. It's actually like understanding the mechanisms of the divine mind. And mm. we have our own sort mm. of lens on that based on our personal experiences that have shaped our personal um, unconscious um, and that we need to sort of, you know, refine or, you know, strip away all of these things that have been accrued onto it through our experiences and through our conditioning to get to that true essence of mind. And I think the processes of alchemy and purification and refinement and um, dissolution, coagulation, um, sublimation, all of these things are ways that we do that work of refining the mind. <laughs> you mentioned um, finding something indestructible and eternal inside yourself, which is um, spot on. I think it's 
absolutely uh, the point of meditation, I think. Uh, it's the point of spirituality. And ideally, it is something that happens, at least in my experience, finding that uh, once you find that, uh, nothing can touch you. And literally nothing can touch you. And that that's true magic. Um, the events of the world are much less distressing. Um, aging is less distressing. Uh, losing people you love is 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 always distressing, but it, it's it, it's combined with the sense of um, something eternal, and uh, which lessens the blow. I think, um, and I think that if you engage in magic and meditation or alchemy or whatever the language is, uh, long and hard enough, you're you're probably. And if that's your goal, you're going to get to it, but it may come to you not in a meditation, but through a, maybe something, a grueling life experience or something that you have to go through in life outside of the comfortable, like it's not going to happen in the comfortable padding of your temple or the meditation mat. It's going, it's probably going to happen because of that, but it's not going to, it's not going to show up in an easy way in my experience. Yeah. 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 I've had um, several key moments where I really felt that eternal essence. And one of them was um, when my mom passed and I was with her in the room when she passed. And just that moment, you know, when she took her last breath was everything that I had sort of learned and studied and experienced for myself on my own path um, with alchemy and magic and just spirituality in general kind of culminated in that moment. And I was able to perceive just the inherent perfection of everything between my mom and I, but everything beyond that. And, you know, my mom and I had a challenging relationship, um, sometimes really beautiful and sometimes really toxic. But in that moment, it was just all perfect. All of the, the difficulty and all of the trauma and everything was just as it needed to be, you know, and there was just this deep acceptance and also a deep uh, recognition of her eternal essence that would always be with me and my eternal essence that would always be connected to her, you know? And, um, that was one experience for me that, um, you know, helped me really solidify that feeling of eternity. Hmm. So you felt that everything you'd done up to that point was culminated or realized in that moment or that it had helped structure it somehow? Yeah. Yeah. It was like, a moment of just complete integration of everything. I think it was like a real life experience where those things actually like meant something so much more. Mm. Interesting. So just so I have this clear in my mind, what, so we've got, I just want to make sure I have these stages, the four stages in correct order. So you've got Negredo, uh, Al Albedo comes after that mm -hmm. and then Rubedo. And what, what were, what were the other ones? Well, it's Nigredo, Albedo, Citrinitas, and Rubedo. Okay. So, yeah. cool. So, just, and, and bear with me here. So, the in terms of context of this conversation, the Nigredo period was this kind of dark night of the soul period for you of shadow. Mm -hmm. We could just call it for, uh, just to be vulgar, shadow work. And mm -hmm. uh, Albedo was the, uh, that was the collapse of distinction between self and other. Yeah, I think a key process of the albedo would be dissolution. Uh, of yeah. the boundary between self and other. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then, so what were the state, what were, uh, 
citrinitus is that what you called it uh-huh citrinitus so that's like a solarization okay um and i would summarize that stage as integration so what did that look like in practical terms in, in your life well or if it's something we already talked about just refresh well, my memory I think, um, I tend to see like, uh, I think I'm actually in that stage right now. Cause I keep dreaming of the color yellow and yellow houses and stuff. So mm-hmm. I think I'm in that stage. Um, but I tend to think of it when I'm working on a painting, say, and my paintings take me a while, sometimes months or years. Uh, and I reach an impasse where I just don't really know what the next move is. Um, so I kind of put the painting down and I see it as though it's going into a stage of digestion or gestation. And I don't really need to know what's going to happen. Um, it's sort of on the back burner and I can just let it unconsciously develop and trust that at a certain point, I'll just know what the next move is, you know, because I'm committed to the image, I'm committed to the painting. And so I just need to be patient and allow it to unfold naturally. So I see that as sort of a citrinitus process. It's like, okay, um, I've just eaten some food. And it's going through my digestive system. I'm not going to sit there and like think about how it's digesting. I don't have to like consciously be engaged with that process. It's just happening automatically within me. Um, And so there are certain times in life and in the creative process where that's also the case where things are happening, but we don't necessarily need to be consciously involved. And that's one aspect of it. Um, But on another level, when we've been through that albedo phase and maybe we've been doing a lot of dream work and we've got all of this sort of unconscious material or like symbolic material that we don't really know how to make sense of. Um, the citrinitas is a time when we can bring that solar consciousness into the process and begin to consciously engage with the unconscious material. And so an example of that would be Jung's technique of active imagination. Um, and that's, just going very consciously into a sort of meditative state where you invite the unconscious to dialogue with you. And you might see an image of some figure from a dream or a figure of your unconscious and um, you can ask them questions and then they'll um, answer you and you can write down the dialogue as it's unfolding and kind of learn a lot uh, about that part of yourself. And if it's a, maybe say it's like a negative figure from a dream or something, um, as you dialogue with them, you can maybe ask what it is that they need um, in order to feel okay so that they're not tormenting you in your sleep, you know? And so mm-hmm. you can come to sort of agreements with your unconscious through that act of imagination. That's interesting. Yeah, there's a very similar process in neurolinguistic programming called parts integration. Um, maybe it was based on that. I don't know. Interesting. So then what is the rubato, uh, what is the rubato stage? The rubato stage is the completion. So where everything is firmly fixed into your awareness. Um, So fixation is one of the alchemical processes that I talk about in that chapter. And that's really where the stone becomes impervious to fire. So that spiritual awareness that you've been cultivating through this whole process uh, becomes fully integrated and fully um, held within the self as something that is just a part of you and becomes eternal within you it can't be destroyed because it's reached this stage of perfection um so that's one aspect of it and then there's other processes that go into that final stage like 
the multiplication of the stone. And this is where the stone is sort of um, submitted to all four stages of the process again, but in a much faster period of time, shorter period of time. And you can do this as many times as you need to um, in order to refine the potency of that awareness or that stone or that creative project. So um, it, this can be a repeating process. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I've definitely experienced that, especially with writing the books, you know, um, because the books were sort of born out of my personal experience of those four stages in a very real sort of extended sense. Um, but then as I began to integrate all of that information and all of that experience and write about it, I definitely had to go through those stages many, many times through the process of writing um, in order to complete the books. So that would just be an example of in a creative sense of how you might go through the four stages many times before you bring something to completion. I'm curious what it's like then to, um, because you've, you've been pretty prolific, uh, very prolific and have been doing a lot of media and all of that. Um, but these are very personal topics. So when you kind of bring these in bringing these very personal processes and topics out into the public, has that been, what has that process been like for you and like contacting the, the rest of reality of, of normal people, yeah. allegedly well, normal? I, mean, I first started doing that, um, years ago when I was still living in Olympia and the books were just in their very like, um, nation forms. Like I was just beginning the writing and just sort of beginning to, understand these four processes. And so I would talk to people about it. And most of the people that I would talk to about it would sort of affirm that they had similar experiences or that they could relate to these processes in some way. And so I think that was um, motivating for me to continue doing the work and continue sort of refining my ideas around it um, and bringing them into a form that I could share with the world. And it's hard to talk about any of this without getting personal because it really was born out of my personal experience. So um, it's been, I don't know, I think I've gotten pretty used to being vulnerable um, through my art. And I express a lot of vulnerability uh, through the visions that I have and the paintings that come out of that. Um, but talking about these things is a little bit different. And that's definitely been, you know, it's been a learning curve for me over the last year or so, like doing podcasts and um, being asked to speak publicly, publicly because the completion of the books required so much hermetic solitude, you know, um, it was like three years and I barely saw anybody. Um, and, you know, I was engaged on social media because that's part of my business and all of that. So I was connected to the world, but, um, you know, I could go like a week without seeing another human being yeah. physically. Around me. Um, and I would spend, you know, most of my days just writing and researching and doing that work. So then to complete the books and suddenly be sort of, um, thrust into the public sphere and have to like talk about these ideas out, out loud, you know, and like um, be exposed to so many more people. It's definitely been uh, a new level of vulnerability and exposure that's I'm adjusting to it now, but it was uh, difficult at first. So what was, what was that process like? What were the uh, difficulties that you faced in doing that? Cause I think that's something that a lot of 
um, freaks a lot of creative people out is bringing their stuff into the public. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there were a lot of fears that came up, um, insecurity, being uncertain whether or not I could express myself uh, verbally the way I wanted to, because uh, writing is a much more, you can take your time formulating your ideas and uh, speaking is just so immediate. So I had a lot of insecurity around that. Um, and, you know, the only way to really get through it is just to do it and uh, to trust, you know, trust myself that I've done this work and that it's integrated on a deep level for me and that I can uh, trust myself to respond in the moment to things as they arise to questions in a interview, you know? Um, and I think one result it's, it's really great. I, I feel like the books have been successful and I've gotten a lot of positive uh, feedback and a good response to them. And I think they're selling well and that's all really wonderful. And, um, I've gotten a lot of new followers and a lot of new patrons and that's all incredible. Um, but it also feels like a lot more pressure, you know, a lot more pressure to show up and to be consistent. And, um, I'm trying to find the balance between being available and showing up and also being committed to my actual creative process, mm -hmm. which happens mostly behind the scenes. And yeah, that's an ongoing thing that I'm working on is just, where's that balance between engaging with the world and being available, but also like just doing the actual work. It's tricky, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very, it was very tough for me. Um, so what is, what is, are, is, are you going to do another book in this series or are you looking towards new projects? Um, I am working on a new writing project, um, doing a walk through the 36 decans of the Zodiac. So I started that with Aries this year and, um, I'd like to do some art around it starting next year. So it's kind of an ongoing project and I'm not sure exactly what it's going to turn into in the end, but it'll probably take me, you know, five years to, to finish it. Um, and it's just something that I'm interested in and it was born from writing these two books, um, mm. and learning about the Deccans, um, in the hermetic sense. And they're just given such a high level of importance in the hermetica that I became really curious to understand them on a deeper level for myself. and to do that, um, writing is the best way for me to do that. So, and it'll make sense if it becomes a book eventually, but we'll see. So this would be like creative writing or, uh, research, uh, analytical writing. Both. Okay. Yeah. It's a lot of research. And then there's a, a high level of creativity that comes in the interpretation. Super cool. Um, have you talk about I know a lot of artists listen to this show and, and take classes at magic taught me, um, a lot. And so for somebody who is maybe interested in utilizing these processes in their work or in their life. And, and I, I love that you said that creativity doesn't necessarily mean somebody who's traditionally artistic. It could, we're all creative. Uh, everyone's creative. And I, by the way, I think that emphasizing that point to people right now is really important because creativity has just had become completely devalued in our culture. Uh, we're trying to replace it with an, a with, with AI. We're not getting taught. Kids are not getting taught the creative arts in school anymore. Um, and so I think it's really important to 
give people the um, whoever does it somebody has it's very important for somebody to come along and give people the permission to be creative no matter who they are because most people get like um you know imposter syndrome or they don't feel that they have anything to say or they're not worthy of being creative and everyone has something to say every everyone has something they need to say and everyone is creative and so i think that giving people that permission is is just critical right now that's a tangent my question is for people who want to utilize these processes, whether they're um, literal uh, creative artists or just creative people, how would they best go about it? Well, I think um, reading the book <laughs> would be a good place to start. Um, but just in general, I think becoming more observant of our reality is really just basic to beginning to engage alchemically with life and with creativity. And so that entails observing what's going on within the body so for instance i eat something and i get a stomach ache you know making that connection okay what did i eat and maybe i can adjust something a little bit and next time when i have a meal you know try something a little different and see if i feel better just simple example um or just observing our environment around us observing what's happening in nature around us with the seasons changing, the patterns of animals um, and the changes in the trees, the changes in the air, changes in the light. Um, and also observing what's going on on the deep internal level. So like with our dreams, paying attention to dreams. And in all of these ways, we can just begin to make the connections, the very subtle connections between the inner world and the outer world, just through observing and maybe taking some notes or, you know, if we have recurring dreams about something, um, trying to tease out what that dream is telling us and applying that to our waking life, you know, is there something I can adjust in my waking life that will affect that recurring dream, you know, observing and then um, adapting, making cer certain little adjustments to engage with that process. Hmm. You mentioned earlier that the body is the alchemical vessel, like the al alchemy is done within the body. And it was unclear to me whether you meant the physical body or like somebody's body of work, um, hmm. like their artistic hmm. output. Uh, wh what did you mean by that specifically? Uh, well, when I said it, I meant the physical body. Okay. Um, I think it could also mean the physical body of work, but yeah, I was saying specifically the physical body um, because that's where our unconscious, where we experience our unconscious is through the body. And oftentimes the body will speak to us from the unconscious level. And if we can learn the language of our own unconscious through the body, we can understand what's going on within ourselves to a much greater degree. Um, and there's a lot of elemental relationships that go into that and, you know, different parts of the body that correspond to different elements or different planetary energies or the zodiac signs. And so getting an understanding that esoteric anatomy can really help us to tune into the symbolic things that are going on within us. Um, so for instance, right now, I've got some hip pain and it's been going on for a couple of weeks and there may be something physical that I'm doing that's causing that. And that's sort of, I think what most people go to is like, what am I doing that's causing this? Or like, what's causing this? Um, but I'm also thinking about 
you know, the hips relate to the water element and the pelvic basin. It's like a bowl holding the emotions, holding the water energy of the body. And the hip kind of correlates with the water chakra. And so I have been thinking about emotionality and grief. And maybe it's on the right side of the body. So maybe it's like related to something active that's going on. And, um, or maybe related to um, the masculine side of myself. So just, you know, just sort of making these little connections to um, address not only the physical health of the body, but how that relates to our emotions, how that relates to our mental sphere and our thought patterns. And um, then maybe I would do something creative to process that and to express that. Have you ever looked at Indian alchemy? That's something that I really want to explore more um, in the future. Um, I've just sort of touched upon it a little bit in my studies, but I have I haven't really engaged with it full on. It was pretty clear to me during my um, time in India and with uh, with uh, with yogic uh, yoga and tantra um, that the Indians have consistently had the alchemical stuff and probably it came from India. Um, but it broke down somewhere in Europe, much like Western magic and is missing some critical stuff. Uh, whereas in India, it's an unbroken tradition. There was a great, and I've seen evidence of that, by the way, um, uh, in the tangible physical sense. Um, mm. the, there's a great book from the nineties called the alchemical body by David Gordon white. Okay. Uh, not to be confused with Gordon White, David Gordon White, who's a professor at UC Santa Barbara. Um, highly recommend that book. It, it's about Indian alchemy, um, Siddha alchemy, and the the body as the site of, of alchemical processes. It's a large book, yeah. so I can't really encapsulate it very well, but there's a lot in there. Great. Yeah, I will check that out. And then I think uh, alchemy, supposedly alchemy means alchem, like from of Egypt, like the Egyptian art. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an uh, Arabic word, al as a prefix, and then kimia, uh, referring to the black art. Yeah, and that comes from the ancient word for Egypt, which is kemet, or the black mm-hmm. land. Do you, do you in your research, do you feel that that's true, that it came from Egypt originally? Yeah, from the research that I've done, um, to me, it all points back to ancient Egypt. And a lot of the alchemical... Uh, philosophies and goals, they really are reflected in ancient Egyptian uh, mythology and cosmology as well. I'm going to be cheeky. Do you think that it's at all possible that the white people completely misunderstood what they took from Africa? (laughs) Oh, definitely. (laughs) How so? Um, Well, I think, you know, ancient Egypt as we know it is um, sort of... Egypt goes back way further than um, we think of it in terms of ancient Egypt. And the peoples of that land were African, Black people of Africa. And I think a lot of that um, spiritual tradition of Egypt was birthed much earlier on and sort of inherited by what we think of as the ancient Egyptians. And that's the whole idea of like chemitology, um, is going back to the very, very ancient roots of the Egyptian tradition. Yeah, that stuff fascinates me. And um, I would love to have more comedic practitioners on the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're a, a comedic practitioner or hotep of some type, please get in touch with me. Um, but uh, yeah, because it's like there's all these spiritual traditions that are 
well, let, let's just talk specifically about the comedic tradition, which I don't know a whole lot about, but it's a very active, very vibrant, very living spiritual tradition in America that means a whole lot to a whole lot of people. And so, uh, and that's really cool to see. And I would like to, to talk to people about that and understand it more. And I want, I'm curious what their thoughts on alchemy are as well, particularly yeah. in that context of trying to go back to the original, whatever the original form was. I have a recommendation for someone that you could have on the show. Sure. That I just listened to a podcast um, when I was traveling and I want to say it was on Rebel Spirit Radio, but I'm not 100% on that. But um, his name is Dr. Edward Bruce Bynum. And how do you really spell that? How do you spell his last name? I think it's B-Y-N-U-M. Okay. And the book that he was on the show talking about is called Our African Unconscious, The Black Origins of Psychology and Mysticism. And it's on my list of books to read now. I just learned about him and his work and um, it's really fascinating. And I think it's right um, up that alley that you're talking about. Interesting. Yeah, I really do suspect that as kind of like the decolonial um, impetus goes forward uh, or not even maybe not even just that, but or post-colonialism, but just better access to information academically because of the internet and, and academic research and things like that. Um, my hope is that we're just going to learn a whole lot more about what these traditions actually were, what they are, and um, before colonization, uh, or just in a sense that has not been Hollywoodized or sensationalized or, you know, like case in point, the classic uh, you know, like it, it, Egypt, ancient Egypt was only dug up in the 19th century. And of course they immediately said that it was all white people and, um, you know, uh, our, our people's ideas about Eastern spirituality used to only be influenced by like, uh, Blavatsky and T. Lopsang Rampa and like these really, really cheesy racist, like Orientalist, uh, pulp paperbacks from the early part of the 20th century, which is where the whole idea of ascended masters came from, by the way. Uh, it was theosophy, but it was also like, popular fantasy uh, uh writers you know and so there's the kind of that bleed in between people's amount like rather than go back and look at the actual cultures and do research people will just make up whatever the fuck and then just say that it was divinely inspired it's like well actually no <laughs> that's not that's not that's not how this works but um yeah. anyways bit of a tangent um <laughs> but yeah so but in your research on alchemy, just going back historically, what were your thoughts on alchemy as something that emerged from? Because when I think about the history of alchemy, I think about Egypt, I think about India, but primarily I think about the Renaissance. I think about um, the, that period in uh, kind of the Rosicrucian period in Europe, Saint Germain, people like this, um, that period where alchemy was very in vogue. What was what is your take on the history of alchemy now uh, from all the research that you've you've done of it, both in Europe and beyond? Well, I see it rooted in ancient Egypt, and the Egyptians definitely had um, practices that could be related to alchemy. You know, metallurgy and the making of ceramics and dyes, and um, they were they knew about the assaying of gold pretty early on, and. Then there was the period of Greek alchemy and sort of the Hellenistic period um, and the Alexandrian alchemists and um, thinking of like Zosimos of Panopolis, who was an Egyptian, um, and even 
Maria the prophetess or Maria the Jewess um, very early, I think pre-Zosimos actually, um, he quoted some of her writings and she was attributed with inventing many different alchemical apparatuses and um, including the Ban Marie. And um, what is that? Um, the Ban Marie is the, what's the other name? That's the French name for it. Um, it's a sort of way of like heating up a vessel within another vessel that's filled with water. So it creates a more steady, like even heat. I just heard Bon Me like the Vietnamese sandwich, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a different alchemy, actually. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's the early Greek alchemists and um, then how it sort of got translated through the Arabic period um, and the alchemical texts going into the hands of the Arabic peoples. And um, they had their whole um, um, take on it as well, um, which then fed into the medieval alchemical period. And that was like uh, Alkindi and other people like that. Like there was, a, yeah, it was preserved in in the Middle East, right? Like in the 12th century. Yeah, yeah, around the 12th century. Yeah. Um, but I I tend to think about like when I read alchemical texts and stuff, a lot of what I'm looking at is from that Renaissance period, and a lot of the sort of texts that incorporate um, the classic alchemical engravings and images and illustrations. Um, that we think of when we when we think of alchemy, those very obscure uh, images. So, so, in terms of European alchemy, what what are your, do you think that it was a complete tradition? Do you think that they actually got somewhere, or was it a failed experiment? Mm. Well, I mean, if you're talking about actually transmuting lead into gold, or whatever their goals were. I think it depends on the individual alchemists, really, whether or not it was a failed experiment. I think there are certainly many alchemists that um, missed the point altogether and got obsessed with the physical aspect of it and the potential for creating massive amounts of gold and wealth and um, missed out on the inner component and the spiritual component. And I think that continues to be uh, a pitfall that alchemists will fall into. Like um, literally today, people get hung up on making gold. Oh, yeah, hmm. definitely. Yeah. Or the sort of, I don't know, I've seen people on that path sort of get on t into like a power trip with it, you know? How, how so? That's interesting. I think it's the same thing that can happen with the magical path is you get obsessed with the powers and the things that you can accomplish and um, a sort of spiritual superiority. And the same thing happens with alchemy, uh, where people feel like they know they know the secrets and um, it can turn into a sort of cultish um, power play with other people. Are we talking about physical alchemy or the more depth psychology processes? Uh, both really. Oh, so, so you've met, you met physical alchemists who are power tripping over their beakers or whatever. Yeah. I don't want to get too much into it, but yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, without naming names, I mean, what the hell what was that about? Um, I think it just becomes, uh, you know, when people get disconnected from the spiritual aspect of it and the ego gets a little too caught up on um, the understanding that 
it's like a megalomaniac type of thing, you know, like they feel like all powerful. So, so, well, that suggests that they were actually able to do something with their science kit. Or they thought so. What, what did they think they did? Um, well, I think I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, claiming to have actually created the philosopher's stone and then using that as a way to sort of, um, entice other people. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, I, I don't man. want to say too much about it. I, but. I, no, I understand now. Um, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, so you have you spent a lot of time around people who were literally doing science experiment alchemy? Like I know Damien Eccles was really into this for a while. He may still be where he was working with people in Italy or something like that. He was posting about it on Instagram, but this is not something I've ever really had an interest in or been involved in. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm always curious. It's like, it always actually shocks me that there are people who are still trying to do like glass tube and beaker alchemy, but that's the case. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's become, um, kind of popular actually. And I, I'm aware of several people that are doing it and, um, that were doing it in the past. And some of it is medicinal and it's just making spagyrics, you know, what, so what, is a, what is a spagyric? Um, a spagyric is sort of like a tincture, but it's, it creates, um, more of a holistic formula because it takes the, the salt the oil and the spirit from a substance, usually a plant, um, extracts them through different processes like uh, calcination, uh, distillation, fermentation, and then recombines them into a very refined medicine. So, you know, a plant material would be first uh, probably distilled to extract the oil, the essential oil. And then that plant matter uh, that the oil has been extracted out of. Um, could be fermented to attain the spirit of the plant. And then that final plant matter could be calcined and completely burned down to ash. And that ash would be the salt of that plant. So yeah, that's a spagyric. And I think that's a really beautiful way that alchemy is being used today. So that, that stuff actually works mm -hmm. to do, is it just like homeopathic medicine or what, what's the effect of these things? Uh, well, I'm not well-versed enough to say exactly, um, but I have worked with spagyric medicines and found them to be effective myself. So just from personal experience and they seem to work, um, both on a physical level, but then on a subtle level as well. Can you give an example of, of taking one of these things, how that, what that looked like and what happened? Well, it's been a while since I've had spagyric medicine, but I have more recently, um, been taking this initiatic elixir um that's made by you know richard and karen bartlett no sorry i just want to hear initiatory elixir i immediately think about crack rock <laughs> but uh keep going well it's um yeah you, you've seen the dmt elves but have you seen the crack elves or the the, oh aer the airplane glue elves sorry oh no um it's like a essence of ruby and oil of gold i believe and so the oil of gold is something that I've worked with. The over fuck the is oil? Sorry. What, what is oil of gold? What is that? Well, essentially it's like the essence of gold, but li literally what is it? I couldn't tell you because I'm not a laboratory alchemist okay. and I don't know how to make these things in okay. a laboratory. Okay. <laughs> but I've had the oil of gold from several different alchemists over the years and, um, just found it to be, it's a very subtle medicine but I find it just sort of supports my processes and helps me to feel connected to 
the unity of creation and to my, you know, my highest um, exalted expression of self. And uh, it's not something that, you know, you take and suddenly you're tripping or something. It's like sort of homeopathic, you know, I take it in very small doses and just allow it to work on a subtle level. Interesting. You mentioned spagyrics, but what else you said that that was one example. What were the other things that they were making? Oh, well, like, yeah, different, um, I guess, metallic sort of experiments and processes. Um, um, let me, yeah, I don't know if I could recount any specific things, but, um, I mean, usually like when I follow, there's a few alchemists that I follow on social media and they'll just post pictures of like really beautiful crystals and things that are being produced in their, their flasks and vessels and stuff. And usually it's like, um, sometimes working with copper or different metals and, um, I'm not really sure what the purpose of that is other than it's really interesting. Um, but maybe they're working on making medicines or, um, I guess I would, yeah, I'd have to ask them exactly what they're working towards, but they, they may, no, no. Have you, so you've never, you've never seen somebody pull like a gold brick out of the air to be fair though, if, and I think about this sometimes, <laughs> it's like, even like back in the day, like, man, like if it had been like 1703 and I'd figured out how to make gold, like what I have told anyone, hell no. Like, yeah, no doubt. Even now it's like, if you figure out how to make gold, like I'm pretty sure you're going to keep that for yourself and not just like, like, you know, like mm -hmm. broadcast that to the entire planet. <laughs> Cause then gold will be, will be without, it will be me meaningless. The gold will no longer oh, have value. Uh, Cause there'll be too much of it. <laughs> uh, and then the worst thing could happen and people be doing all this so much alchemy for gold that they might OG over gold. And then that's, that's that. <laughs> that's a joke from an eighties movie. Um, Interesting. Okay. Well, um, it seems like we pretty much, co we covered quite a lot of territory here. Is there stuff that we didn't touch on or that you wanted to talk about? Um, yeah, we've covered quite a lot. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I think I'm feeling pretty complete with it. There's definitely things that we could continue to talk about. Um, we didn't really talk much about the imagination or about the different art periods that are in the book, but, um, that's all in the book so people could read about it. Okay. Well, we could touch on it now, or if you just want to tell people where the book and where, where to get the book and leave them hanging, maybe they will go buy it. Well, I'll just say a little bit about that. Okay. Um, so one of the main themes of the book is really, um, reasserting the importance of the imagination, um, uh, because I think it gets a pretty bad rap and it has for a while as being unreal. Um, something you know, it's imaginary. It's not real. It's not important. It's not important because it's not physically tangible and something that we can objectively verify. Um, so this sort of attitude has been with us really strong since the enlightenment of like, just wanting to work with what's subjective, what's factual, scientific. Um, and that's all very important. And I think it was a really necessary step in our evolution. Uh, but I think we lost something really important in the process or we didn't lose it, but it just sort of got brushed aside and cast into this kind of um, negative light or just irrelevant light. By negative and irrelevant uh, light, I'm assuming you mean the art world. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so yeah, reasserting the importance of the imagination and that it's actually a very uh, vital and quintessential uh, faculty of being a human being and um, being able to access that and understand it and refine it. Because I tend to think of the philosopher's stone as the imagination um, because it has the powers to transmute our reality. You know, if we think of the process of creation as described through many different uh, cosmogenies, it all sort of begins um, through the image making power of this first creator. And so we can tap into that same energy as our individual self and um, really affect change in the world just through the imagination and through holding um, more beautiful idealized visions of what we want to see in the world around us, uh, rather than allowing our imaginations to be completely bogged down by all of the horrors, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, no, yeah. Yeah, that's always a really important thing to point out to people. Um, and I have a couple thoughts on that. One is that, yeah, if you don't imagine something better, no one's going to do it for you. Quite the opposite. All you got to do is look at the news and, uh, you know, like like right before. And, and the world is so ridiculous and people have no idea what's going on. And they change their mind about everything. It's like, you know, as, as Dadaji Mahendranath put it, you know, humans are like on the zigzag path where they go to one extreme and then the other, and they just go back and forth forever. It's like, I was just, just before this podcast, I was, I was looking at the news and it's like Biden is now building Trump's border wall. It's like, there you go. Like that's like Biden and just executive pr approve the wall. It's just like, there, there you go. There's politics for you. Like, like, why did you ever put any effort in, or emotion into this thinking you could change it? You can't change this stuff. It's just like, it's the federal government. So, um, uh, it's so easy to waste your life fixated on all the negative things in the world. And that doesn't mean you should have your head in your sand. I have anyone should know like quite the opposite, but, um, you you have to take maybe alchemy maybe alchemy is a good metaphor for that because you have to deal with the negrator you can't get a, away from it you have to look at all the worst as i have like immerse yourself in all the worst stuff um but then from that you have to you know you have to grow something out of that out of that soil you have to yeah. you have to aim for something that you, you actually want instead of just reacting to um mm -hmm. the shit because there's always going to be the shit it's part of the natural process um so that is really important. On the other hand, though, it's and, and I agree with you. It's like I feel like a really good way to kind of get the ball rolling with people in an in initiatic initiatic sense is just pointing out to them. It's like the imagination is real. It's just real on a different level. Everything that's ever been done ever in human history, ever, anyone who's ever created something that wasn't there before, uh, it, it existed in the world of the imagination first. Airplanes existed in the imagination first. Vaccines existed in the imagination first, and then they were made real. Um, the same with everything else that we interact with language, everything. Um, and yet we downplay it. Like you said, on the other hand, though, it's been pointed out to me recently. It's like, maybe you don't want to run around telling people their imaginations are real though, because a lot of people have some, that could be very imbalancing for some people, you know, and it's just like yeah, everything that's... you imagine is not, you can't just imagine something and think it's real. It's so maybe more subtle language is called for here where it's like the, um, imagination is like the shadow of reality or suggest things that might become real, but it's not necessarily, I mean, right. I think if you treat your imagination as hundred percent real, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And I think there are, you know, people that are in that boat 
um, that don't know how to differentiate between what's going on in their imagination and what's going on in consensus reality. Yeah, like a really dark uh, example would be like stalkers, right? Where it's yeah, just like, exactly. oh yeah, like, you know, like you love me and we're going to be together and all this shit. It's like, no, 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 I don't even know who you are, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. We need to be able to engage relationally with each other and also get in touch with that um, free imagination within ourselves. But um, the imagination is like the, uh, the blueprint for what's potential in reality. You know, and the more energy that we give to it, the more likely that it could be reality. So if we're imagining really horrible things all of the time and worried about things all of the time, like we might tend to have bad experiences more often, you know, and it's not foolproof. That's not always going to happen. You're not going to like manifest every single thing that you think about. But um, there is a correlation between what's going on within us and what happens in our experience externally. Absolutely. And and then there's also just so many different forces at work because this reality that we're in is a co-creation. Yeah. And there's yeah. how many billion people now? Nine billion people? Almost nine. Yeah, almost nine yeah. billion. Yeah. yeah. So like there's a lot of factors at work. It's not all up to us individually to create the universe. Um, but we do have influence. I think we, well, I think we covered a lot here. So um, unless there's anything else you want to touch on, I mean, maybe this is a good place to wrap up. Um, do you want to tell people about where to get the books? And also, do you teach this material at all? Well, that's the next step that I'm working on. Um, and I've been, it's just been a lot of energy with all of the, the podcasts and just um, kind of catching up on things in life after finishing the books. So I'm slowly getting there. Um, but yes, I do want to be teaching and I'm also going to be offering a very limited amount of, um, alchemical sort of guidance sessions with people. It would just be like once a month, just to sort of check in and like advice on how to engage with these, um, with these processes in a real sense. So that'll be very limited and I'll, I'll make announcements about that. Um, on my website and on my social media. So the book is available um, as a hard copy. And I would highly recommend that because it has um, color illustrations in it of my work, of my artwork. And it's also just really beautifully done um, by it inner is, tradition. Yeah, it is. And that's available through all the major booksellers. And there's links on my website, which is marlena7bremner.com. Um, and it's also available as an audiobook and I believe as an ebook. So yeah, you can find all of that there. And also I make announcements about events and art exhibitions and I've got lots of art prints for sale on my website. So that's definitely a place to check in if you want to learn more about my work. And uh, I'm on social media um, on Instagram as M7 artist. So M the number seven artist. And yeah, I post a lot of, uh, pictures from my personal life, just nature stuff. And then also new work and old work and everything in between and, um, Facebook as well. Um, uh, Marlena seven Bremner dash artist, and I have a Patreon. So if you want to go a little deeper and also join me on the Deccan walk that I mentioned earlier, um, that's all on my Patreon blog and the blog itself is available for just a dollar a month. And then there's other rewards if you subscribe at different tiers beyond that. 
Um, so that's a great way to learn more about what I'm currently working on and to see things that are happening uh, behind the scenes uh, with my art practice. Nice. And tell people the name of the book one more time. It's The Hermetic Marriage of Art and Alchemy, Imagination, Creativity, and the Great Work. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being back on the show for your second episode. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.